welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Wendy Netter Epstein, Professor of Law at DePaul University College of Law and Faculty Director of the Mary and Michael Jaharis Health Law Institute. We will discuss her article, Private Law Alternatives to the Individual Mandate, which will be published in the Minnesota Law Review. So welcome to the program, Wendy. Thanks, Brian. I'm excited. Thanks for having me on. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. Um, This was a really interesting and informative paper, I thought, with some really clever ideas in it. But before we get to those, I wonder if we could start by you just explaining to listeners who may not be intimately familiar with healthcare policy, as it were, what exactly is the Affordable Care Act and what is or was the individual mandate? Those are really big questions to start off with, Brian. Let me do my best to kind of give a simple explanation. Um, so, So prior to the Affordable Care Act, there were almost 50 million people in the United States who didn't have health insurance, who were uninsured. And for for a large part, the Affordable Care Act was an attempt to address that problem. So it does all sorts of different things. But when most people think about the Affordable Care Act and health policy circles, the sort of like major policy change or or attempted health reform legislation was um, to address that particular issue. So the way that it did that was it created this web of interconnected provisions. And, and some of these were super popular and everybody kind of got on board. Things like um, extending health insurance coverage to young people um, on their parents' plans until they reach the age of 26, right? So that's just like one small example. But there were two really big ways that the Affordable Care Act attempted to get more people insured. One was by expanding access to Medicaid coverage. Um, that was you know, controversial at the time. There was big Supreme Court uh, litigation about it. And ultimately, it became an option for the states whether or not to expand Medicaid. But lots of people did end up getting access to health insurance through the Medicaid expansion. What I'm really focusing on in this paper is the aspect of the Affordable Care Act that um, uh, provided an avenue for people to get access to health insurance who didn't get it through their employer and who also didn't have access through public programs like Medicare and Medicaid. And that is through the individual exchanges. And so there were really two things that the Affordable Care Act did to try to um, prompt people to sign up for health insurance. One was that it provided subsidies for people who made under a certain threshold so that uh, premiums were not so expensive. basically gave tax credits to people to be able to afford health insurance. And the other thing it did was that it issued this individual mandate, which said, hey, you've got to get health insurance. You've got to sign up for it. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay this tax penalty. And so really the whole point there was to try to um, encourage people to sign up for health insurance. Okay. So if I understand it correctly, then there's like a large pot of people in the United States whose only access to health insurance is going to be through the private market. And so in other words, the idea behind the ACA then was to make it more affordable for them, but also to say, if you don't buy the health insurance that we've made affordable for you, you're going to have to pay a penalty to try to give them an incentive to buy the insurance. That's right. Okay. Okay. So, so what happened to the individual mandate then? Um, where did it go? Like, is it still in force or not? And, 
And if not, why would that be a problem? So the story of the individual mandate is is quite a long one. And I will, again, sort of give you the highlights for your listeners. Um, Of course, there was Supreme Court uh, litigation about this as well. Ultimately, the Supreme Court held that the individual mandate, um, you know, didn't have to be struck from the Affordable Care Act. It was constitutional, but it continued nonetheless to be super unpopular. There were lots of parts of the Affordable Care Act that were really popular, um, the you know, prohibitions on uh, pre-existing conditions exclusions and community rating where everybody basically more or less gets charged the same. Like these were things about the Affordable Care Act that people loved. People, um, for the most part, really did not like this individual mandate. They viewed it as an affront to their autonomy. Um, you know, they didn't like uh, feeling like the government was forcing you to buy health insurance. Some people thought that it was you know, overstepping the, the federal government's authority. And this is something that should be left to the states. There are all sorts of reasons that um, the individual mandate sort of came under political fire. And so ultimately, um, in 2017, as a part of the Tax Reconciliation Act, which is not a place that we would normally think that we would find health reform like this, but, uh, but that's, that's where it resided. Um, the, the individual mandate penalty I'm trying to be very specific here. So it was the, the, the penalty, the part that said you have to pay this tax when you file your tax returns if you didn't maintain health insurance. That's what was struck from the law. So we do technically still have an individual mandate, um, but there's no longer any sort of penalty associated with failing to maintain health insurance. So as shorthand, you might hear me refer to you know the individual mandate being repealed because for all intents and purposes, that's really, you know, what happened as a part of that Tax Reconciliation Act. Um, but really, technically, it's just the penalty that's been repealed, and that just went into effect in this calendar year in 2019. So it won't be okay. taxes are due in, you know, April of 2020, when people file their taxes, that will really see that the impact of this repeal for the first time. Right. Okay. So the, so the individual mandate tax is still there. It's just a tax of $0. Technically, yes. <laughs> okay, that's interesting, an interesting change. So, I mean, it seems like a lot of what's going on here from a policy standpoint is kind of predicting how people are going to respond to these different incentives being presented to them. What do we know about how the people targeted by the healthcare exchanges and the individual mandate? how they responded to the incentives provided by the ACA and how might that inform our expectations about how they're likely to respond to new incentives moving forward? Well, we know that a lot of folks who didn't have insurance before the ACA now do have insurance because of it. And so the estimates tend to be around 20 million of those 50 million people, more or less, have, have obtained insurance after the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, there are all sorts of different reasons for why that might be. You know, some people point to, uh, you know, insurance uptake because of a stronger economy. Some portion of people got coverage through Medicaid, others through the exchanges. Um, but I think that there's at least a, a good sense that some of these incentives in the Affordable Care Act did work the way that they were designed to work. So the, the subsidies did encourage people to purchase insurance if they hadn't had it before the Affordable Care Act. And um, the, the individual mandate does seem to have encouraged people to purchase insurance who hadn't purchased it before the, the Affordable Care Act was implemented. Right. 
presumably because like we're concerned about like kind of marginal consumers, I guess, as it were, like people making a decision whether to buy or not buy insurance and lowering the cost and increasing the penalty, it seems like for a marginal consumer would make the decision to purchase insurance more attractive than it would be in the absence of those incentives? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. I mean, this is admittedly a pretty complicated story. And I think I should probably mention at this point that, you know, one of the main reasons that the Affordable Care Act was trying to draw like healthy, lower cost insureds into the risk pools was because it had this other major change. And this is, I think I referred to this earlier as something that people tend to really like about the Affordable Care Act. But it moved from a system where insurers could charge sick people who had pre-existing conditions or had predispositions uh, higher rates to a system where insurance companies um, can't underwrite and can't discriminate based on that um, underwriting data and, and charge people different rates, with some minor exceptions, like based on smoking status and that sort of thing. Um, but if you're going to have a system like that, where people are more or less charged, you know, the same rate without regard to their cost, then um, you don't want to have a system where you just have the sick, more expensive people become a part of the risk pool, because then premiums have to be really high if you're taking a really an, an overall costly risk pool and just dividing that by the number of people in the pool. You need to have some lower cost people sort of even out the, the overall cost of the risk pool. So one of the major goals of the individual mandate was to target that population. Um, the folks that are relatively lower cost tend to be younger and that sort of thing and draw them into the risk pool. So... Yeah. So, so how might we expect that to affect people's decision as to whether to buy or not buy insurance? The individual mandate or? The, the moving from a sort of risk-based premium system to a kind of collective premium system. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting because, you know, for the most part, people are really supportive of, of this change. And I think from a moral perspective, um, you know, it, it absolutely makes sense. And it's not surprising that you see this great groundswell of support. But what it does mean from an economic perspective is that, you know, people that are lower cost are subsidizing the expenses of people that are higher cost. I mean, that's just sort of the, the flat truth of the matter. And you might not know in any given year if you're going to be somebody who's in the category of being a lower cost or a higher cost individual. But if you look at this as purely a rational economic decision and you're a young person and you're pretty sure that you're going to have low health care costs in a given year, you, know, you might say to yourself, it's not worth it to me to pay these premiums, especially, you know, even when we had the individual mandate penalty, it was still much lower than the cost of actually purchasing an insurance policy for a year. So you might say that's not a rational economic decision for me to make. It's not in my own personal best interest to, uh, to pay for this policy. So I think that's where some of the tension comes in and why the individual mandate, while certainly helpful in prompting uptake of insurance, wasn't 100% successful, we still had, you know, plenty of people that, that uh, continued to be uninsured even after the ACE. Yeah. And it seems like you suggest that this problem of the sort of desirable low risk pool of individuals not 
kind of making a rational decision not to purchase, purchase insurance might be exacerbated by the fact that if they do find out that they get sick, that they can then purchase it retroactively. Right. So, you know, one of the things that the Affordable Care Act does is it says um, this company can't adjust your rate if it turns out that you've been diagnosed with cancer or, you know, you're diagnosed with diabetes or something like that. And so there is this kind of odd incentive that younger people kind of wait and say, you know, this year I have low health care costs if something bad happens to me and it turns out that I, I'm going to have high health care costs the next year. Well, I can just choose to, to pick up insurance at that point. Now, you know, there's, it's not quite that simple. Um, you know, there's open enrollment periods. You could have to wait many, many months before you could get an insurance policy. But there is sort of that overlying or underlying um, argument that a lot of, I think, younger people and, and healthy people are making about why they can wait to get insurance. Okay. So at this point, is this primarily a prediction about how we think people are going to behave? Or have we started to see kind of actual on the ground evidence of people making these kinds of decisions? Well, we've known since the end of 2017 that the individual mandate penalty was going to be going away. So although 2019 is the first year that technically is in effect, I think we've already seen some previewing of, you know, how how people are going to react to not having this this tax incentive to purchase insurance. We've already seen, you know, uh, rates of of uninsurance starting to, to tick up again. Of course, there are other other things also happening that might be contributing to that. But um, but I, I think that there are a lot of economists out there coming at this from different perspectives, different angles, having different estimates of what sort of effects we're going to see. But the trend line is really the same across the board. So everybody is predicting that uninsurance rates are going to go up with the, re- the repeal of the mandate penalty and that premiums are ultimately going to go up with the repeal of the mandate penalty. So there's sort of you know, conversation about the degree, like just how dire is this situation? How many more uninsured people are we going to have over, say, the next 10 years? How how much higher are premiums going to be because risk pools are going to tend to be sicker and, and more expensive to cover? Um, but but it's certainly a problem. And I think, you know, pretty much everybody agrees that, that this is the trend or the direction in which we're going. So what kind of what's kind of the range of what people are predicting and sort of what do you personally think is most credible? I mean like how big a problem is this in sort of in sort of dollar terms in relation to the healthcare sort of market as a whole and how quickly can and should we expect this problem to really become salient? So at one point in time, there was discussion of a death spiral. You've you've probably heard that term before. It was like a a big media thing. Everybody was talking about it. You know, what would happen if um, we had the repeal of the mandate? Would the markets crash? Would we, you know, not even be able to sustain the system at all? And I think that that um, real doomsday concern has sort of abated. Um, However, at the same time, you know, the estimates of how much premiums are going to increase and how many additional people are going to lose insurance because of this are, are concerning. So, um, you know, I have some estimates from the recent Congressional Budget Office report in the draft paper, and, you know, they're estimating that premiums are going to increase on average about 7% over the next 10 years. 
There are other studies that say, you know, silver plan premiums are going to go up 15%. Um, and, you know, there are, I, I, there's such variation here. There are other studies that say that it's going to be an even higher number than that. Um, you know, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head about how many more people might become uninsured, but um, it, it's in the, you know, many, many millions. So these are certainly concerning numbers. Right, right. So in other words, the more we can encourage people to stay in these plans, even though they might be low risk, the better we're going to be able to mitigate this kind of problem going forward then? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a there's a public good question here, right? I mean, if we want to sustain these, these um, insurance markets, the private insurance markets, and we don't want premiums to go up for everybody, then this is this is something that needs to happen. We need to have some cheaper insureds that don't have high costs brought drawn into these risk pools. But, you know, I also think that there, there's an individual story to be told here. There's all sorts of, you know, individual consequences for people who don't maintain insurance and then have something dire happen to them. You know, they, they get in a car accident or something really unexpected. And, um, you know, we know even for, for people that don't have something dire happen that, health outcomes are worse for people that don't have health insurance. So I think that, you know, both of the individual and societal level, there are things that we should be looking at here. Right. So from your paper, it sounds like there are only a limited number of sort of policy proposal fixes kind of currently on the table. And it sounds like to the extent that there are ideas or approaches out there, they may not really be optimal from a policy standpoint, sort of what have people been talking about as fixes so far? And why do you think those proposed fixes aren't a good idea? So I guess I should say, you know, before I even answer that specific question, that one of the reasons I I took on this paper was because I felt like much of the public policy discussion about health reform had turned to focuses at the, had turned to the extremes. So you know, on the the right, there was a lot of discussion of repealing the Affordable Care Act, going back to really a state-driven model, um, going back to the high-risk pools. And then on the left, we've had all of this focus, um, which, you know, in some respects, I think is, is good and is really important to have these conversations, but on Medicare for all or, you know, maybe Medicare for more or however we want to talk about it. And I think, though, you know, all of that spectrum of ideas, those can all certainly affect um, you know, these these problems. But given that we have the Affordable Care Act right now, and, you know, I, it's certainly unlikely in the next couple of years that we're going to have anything different. And I would venture probably, you know, for even a longer period of time than that. I'm really trying to focus here on well, what do we do with a, in a world where we have the Affordable Care Act and no individual mandate. And that's where I think you're right, that the universe of solutions is relatively limited. Really, it's just been um, the continuous coverage proposals that have kind of gotten a lot of attention in the past couple of years. And I, I, you know, for a variety of reasons that I talk about in the paper, um, and I think are pretty well vetted now, I think that those are very flawed and are not likely to be implemented. Hmm. And just briefly, like, what would that mean, continuous coverage? and, And why do you think it's not a good approach? So continuous coverage is, is basically an idea where if you have a lapse in your coverage and, you know, there's different ways that they have constructed this, but let's say that you, you know, have a lapse and it lasts for longer than 60 days or something like that, that when you, you re-enroll in insurance, you're going to have to pay significantly higher premium rates. 
And so the reason it's designed that way to prompt you to maintain continuous coverage, right? That's where the name comes from. So that you don't have a lapse and you don't have to ultimately pay this penalty if you were to re-enroll. But the major problem, and it really is a major problem, is that um, what it really does is deter people once they've had a lapse from getting insurance again, which is what you, you want. Like if people have had a lapse because they lost a job and they couldn't afford their premiums and then they become employed again, you know, but they don't have employer-sponsored insurance, like you want them to, to get insurance again. Um, and so it had some really kind of negative implications that I think make it a non-starter. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it does sound like that's kind of almost a perverse incentive to be shutting people out of a market that you really want them to join. Yeah. I mean, it was intended to be an alternative to the individual mandate, like less coercive, less of an impact on autonomy. But I just I really don't think that that's a direction that we're going to be going in. Yeah. So it it seems like a lot of the predicted problems are a function of sort of economically rational decision making. In other words, sort of people who are low risk deciding to forego buying insurance because they don't expect to get sick and because buying insurance would cost them more than it sort of like in a discounted sense would be kind of worth it, quote unquote, to them. But of course, we know that people aren't always economically rational decision makers. In fact, they usually aren't in a lot of ways. And what was really fascinating about your paper was you you kind of propose all of these behavioral economics inflected ways of encouraging people to, um, to buy health insurance and to maintain health insurance, even if they kind of from a purely economically rational standpoint, maybe don't have a strong incentive to do so. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those proposals and and observations and why you think they might be a uh, preferable approach to the kind of more blunt force of a continuous coverage type approach. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, that that characterization is really fair. I try to go through in the paper what are both the neoclassical economic reasons that, uh, you know, this target population of young and healthy people or lower cost people are not buying insurance, but then also what are some of the more behavioral economic um, influenced reasons that are causing people not to buy insurance, even if it might be the economically rational choice. And I think we have a little bit of, of both of those really going going on here, and we have to kind of address both of them. So I, I set out this survey of solutions, um, and I don't think we're going to have time to go through all of them, so maybe I'll just highlight a couple of them. So um, one of the first potential solutions that I discuss is I, I call it predatory to, to salutary, so um, co-opting previously malicious practices for good. And this is you know maybe a bit of a controversial idea, but I started thinking about, well, there are all these ways in the the commercial world that companies have to incentivize people to do things that seem like they might be against interest. Um, And so, you know, one of the examples that came to mind was, frankly, the subprime mortgage crisis. You you had the situation where um, lenders were getting people to sign up for mortgages that were not necessarily in their best interest. And they were doing it by giving them these low introductory rates that uh, went up later. And obviously, this is a very bad story, right? It turned out to be a really negative thing. And um, But I started thinking about how effective the tactics were. 
and how if the outcome were something that we wanted from a public policy perspective and not something that was bad, like in the subprime mortgage example, that we might be able to co-opt some of those practices in health insurance. So the idea there is, you know, we could, insurance companies could offer uh, the, this target population of, of sort of younger, healthier, less costly people, low introductory rates. And uh, there's no reason that insurance policies have to only be one year long. They could be longer term policies and um, there could be early termination clauses. And this was something that I took again from kind of an area that gets a bad rap, which is the the cell phone carriers when they used to have these contracts that would, would, um, you know, require you to stay with the carrier or else pay a penalty for exit. And I started thinking about how there's actually a real benefit in the health insurance space to having longer term policies with this lock-in. Um, and this might be something that's worth experimenting with um, to try to prompt health insurance enrollment. Right. So in other words, require people to sign up for a longer term policy with a low kind of teaser rate that then balloons later in in the course of the policy. Because from a consumer perspective, people love something that seems like it's cheap in the moment, even if it gets pricey later. But from an insurer's perspective, it kind of doesn't matter when the revenue comes in, beginning, ending of the policy is sort of a wash for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm hesitant to say that there should be like some undisclosed ballooning of rates later on. I mean, I think you have to have a rate schedule that's agreed upon and that's predictable and that is disclosed. Um, but yeah, that's the general idea is that um, people prefer to, and especially young people in this target population, prefer to have younger, I'm sorry, prefer to have lower rates now and pay higher rates later. And there are lots of studies that have found that even if they pay more over the long run, which is not what I'm suggesting here, I'm suggesting that we could come up with um, an actuarially equivalent option with uh, starting with a lower rate and, and ending with a higher rate. But even if they were to pay more, they still prefer a lower rate now and a higher rate later. So that's a bias that insurance companies could frankly take advantage of this idea of you know hyperbolic discounting that might prompt enrollment. Hmm. I mean, it seems like it may, might make sense for a lot of the target audience, too, because it seems like a disproportionate percentage of them might be people who are relatively low income now, but expect to be considerably higher income in five or 10 years down the road. It maps onto their earning potential. So they might have less money now. They're predicted to have more money five or 10 years from now. And so this um, might be consistent with, with what their earning potential is. So you, you talked about another approach, which was return of premium policies. And this is something you sort of pointed to life insurance policies as working the same way. Honestly, it's something I'd never heard of before, but it was really interesting. I wonder if you could talk about how something like that might work and why, why it might be effective. Yeah. So full disclosure, my husband and I bought one of these return of premium life insurance, term life insurance policies, which is how I started uh, thinking about this as a possible solution for health insurance. And, um, and so, so maybe we were subject to some of the biases that I'm talking about in, in the paper here. Uh, but the basic idea is that most young people um, don't, you know, so they're assuming they're not going to die in the next 15 or 30 years. If they purchase a normal term life insurance policy, it seems like money that they're just throwing away. You just pay your premium for the 15 year term or the 30 year term. And if you're not dead at the end of it, you don't get anything for it. You've, this is just money that you've paid to the insurance company with no return. 
So the return of premium style policies require you to pay a little bit higher of a premium. But then if you're not dead at the end of the 15-year term or the end of the 30-year term, you get your premiums back. And so the way that it works is that the insurance company is investing your premiums. It's basically a loan that you've given to the insurance company over that period of time. Um, but, you know, for many reasons, and again, I've, I've admitted that I've you know fallen sort of into this, I guess, myself. But, um, you know, it, it seems to make a lot of sense because you protected yourself against what happens if you do die in the next 15 to 30 years. Um, and then you've also protected yourself at the other end and that you haven't just completely thrown away this money. So we could do something like that in healthcare. Um, it would have to look a little bit different. Um, we wouldn't want to, uh, you know, tell people that they can consume zero dollars in healthcare expenses in order to get their premiums back. But I think that the general concept is one that could be really interesting, especially for healthy people who the reason for not buying health insurance is that they don't think that they're they're going to need it. This at least provides a safety net for them. Yeah, I mean, if if I understood it correctly, it would be sort of like giving young people a version of buying insurance against kind of catastrophic health health risk almost in the sense that like, you know, you can buy into this policy. If you do get really sick, you'll be covered uh, for whatever those costs are going to be. But if the predicted outcome happens and you don't get really sick, then you'll get back some or all of your investment down the line. Yeah. I mean, although it's not just protection against catastrophic losses, although I think that that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, if you do end up having, you know, just sort of middle of the road healthcare costs, um, you know, and you choose to be reimbursed for those healthcare costs and they go above whatever threshold uh, has been set for return of the premiums and you give up your premiums, well, it's just, you know, it's worth like a regular health insurance policy that maybe you've overpaid for a little bit, but, uh, but that's a decision that you can sort of make in the moment. Mm-hmm. So you, you also talk about the potential to sort of rely to some degree on altruism as a mechanism for encouraging people to buy into the insurance market. I found that really interesting. Sort of why and how do you think that that would be effective? So when I was thinking about this problem, I kept getting hung up on the fact that there was this tremendous groundswell of support for these prohibitions on pre-existing conditions exclusion. So, you know, you you have late night talk show hosts who are, um, you know, talking about the serious negative ramifications of preventing babies who have pre-existing conditions from being able to get insurance later in life. And you see these numbers in public opinion polls ticking up higher and higher. You know, the Republicans are, are now making all sorts of public statements saying this is one thing in the ACA that we support. We're going to protect people, um, whether or not, you know, I, I some concern about the degree to which that's true. But the bottom line is, is that people really are behind this idea, and rightly so, that people that have pre-existing conditions or chronic illnesses or genetic predispositions shouldn't be discriminated against in terms of getting health insurance. But what that means as a practical matter is that we have to be able to pay for those people. If we're not going to charge them higher rates because they have higher costs, that's great, but let's say I'm a younger, healthier person. If I support that idea that I don't want to have my friend who has a chronic condition get charged astronomically high rates, well, how is that going to happen? You know, I'm going to have to subsidize it, whether it's through my taxes or if it's through me buying health insurance. 
And so I wondered if maybe the problem with how we're pitching health insurance is that we're selling it now. The, the current framing is this is a rational economic decision. You should protect yourself and everybody should have health insurance in case they have high health care costs. But people aren't necessarily believing that. So maybe what we should do instead is just be honest and say, hey, if you buy a health insurance policy and you're a young, healthy person, be explicit about the fact that you are subsidizing, you are paying for somebody who has a pre-existing condition to be able to get health insurance as well. Um, and so, you know, the, we always talk about the millennials having this strong altruism uh, streak in, in particular, and that's the target audience here. So I, I think it's at least worth uh, looking into a little bit more. Yeah, no, I think that's really fair. And there is a way in which it seems like the current discourse is sort of disingenuous. And I think young people do know that ultimately that's what they're doing. And rather than letting that be kind of a liability for healthcare policy, maybe as you suggest, there's a way of turning it into a, a kind of a positive. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a skepticism about big insurance companies and, you know, arguing that they all of a sudden are supporting altruism. I think that we would have to see new entrants to the market, uh, you know, nonprofits or something like that. I don't think that Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or Humana are suddenly going to sell insurance and say, you know, we're, we're doing this for altruistic reasons. But, um, but I think that, again, it's, it's something that we shouldn't just dismiss out of hand. And I'd like to see some experimentation. So, so Wendy, in, in closing, I mean, you present like a, a sort of a smorgasbord of different potential alternative approaches or ways of pitching uh, health insurance in, in ways that might help to mitigate or even solve some of these predicted problems caused by the elimination of the mandate, among, among other things. Are there ones you think would be particularly effective, or do you think that these are kinds of um, a basket of policies that we need to sort of pick as many out of the basket as possible in order to try to mitigate the problem in as many different ways as we can. So I don't think that we have to choose one or implement one. I, I try to be careful in the paper to say that, you know, we could try many of these things together. But really what I'm trying to do here is kind of set up some some future work where I want to test some of these um, some of these theories, do some experimentation, you know, hope that I can prompt some insurance companies to look at these as potential solutions and do some experimentation. A lot of this can be done now. Some of it is going to require, um, you know, some legal change and some change in norms, perhaps more importantly. But I, I, you know, it's interesting here you call it a smorgasbord, but I think I think that's right. I was I was sort of trying to lay out a a menu of possible options and generate discussion about these these choices, these policy choices. And I'm excited to kind of start that discussion and and see if we can head towards some possible solutions. Great. Well, Wendy, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed your paper, which is super creative and, and clever. And I hope people interested in the podcast will also will also check it out. Great. Thanks for having me, Brian. Down the high
highway doing 79. I'm a twin pipe popper and I'm feeling fine. Hey, man, dig that. Was that a red stop sign? Transfusion, transfusion. I'm just a solid mess of contusions. Never, never, never gonna speed again. Slip the blood to me, bud. I jump in my rod about a quarter to nine. I gotta make a date with that chick of mine. I cross the center line. Man, you gotta make time. the cotton picking convolutions i'm never 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 gonna speed again shoot the juice to me bruce my foot's on the throttle and it's made of lead but i'm a fast riding daddy with a real cool head i'm a gonna pass a truck on the hill ahead transfusion transfusion my red corpse suckles are in mass confusion never 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 gonna speed again pour the crimson in me jimson i took a little drink and i'm a feeling right i can fly right over everything everything in sight there's a slow poking cat i'm gonna pass him on the right transfusion i'm a real gone pale face and that's no illusion i'm a never 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 gonna speed again pass the claret to me barrett a rolling down the mountain on a rainy day oh when you see me coming better start to pray i'm a cutting up the road and i'm the boss all the way Transfusion, oh doc, pardon me for this crazy intrusion. I'm never, never, never gonna speed again. Pump the fluid in me, Louis. I'm burning up the freeway early this morning. I'm a passing everybody. Oh, nothing but corn, man, out of my way. I don't drive with my horn. Transfusion, oh nurse, I'm gonna make a new resolution. I'm never, never, never gonna speed again. Put a gallon in me, Allen. Oh, barnyard drivers are found in two classes, line crowding hogs and speeding jackasses. So remember to slow down today. Hey, Daddy-O, uh, make that type O, huh?